90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good, John. How about yourself? Oh, I can't complain. We're getting some rain up here, and it's actually cooling down. It feels a little bit more like fall every day. I like it. <laughs> we were at 102 degrees the other day, um, but we also got some rain, and I think we're going to get a lot more rain thanks to the really strong El Nino, and I've been reading a lot about that and getting pretty excited about it. Yeah, there have been some just really amazing lineups of storms, right? <laughs> yes. So one of my students brought this to me. Um, I'm teaching that catastrophic sedimentation class, and obviously hurricanes are one of the things that cause a lot of sedimentation to occur really quickly. And just a couple weeks ago, there were three Category 4 hurricanes in the Pacific simultaneously. Wow. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Pretty incredible. <laughs> um, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but there's this satellite picture. I mean, poor Hawaii. They had to be clenched and holding their breaths a little bit there. Um, but this satellite picture looks like the the scene in The Day After Tomorrow where there's all those hurricanes lined up and it looks ridiculous. That's what the satellite picture looks like. It's unbelievable. But luckily, these Cat 4s didn't hit anything. So everything was all right, but I think that's sort of a preview for, they're calling it the 2015 Super El Nino. Well, yeah, I heard Godzilla El Nino and yeah. all kinds of ridiculous things. I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, that one's my favorite too. I was trying to keep it, you know, scientific, but if you want to go there, I agree. Godzilla Super El Nino. Um, we're supposed <laughs> to get, you know, El Nino in Oklahoma means a really wet winter so it'll be interesting since we've been in a drought for the last four years um to see how this winds up for us um hopefully not too much catastrophic rainfall hits us but we'll see yeah and though though we were complaining not long ago about all the rain you were getting and all the flooding going on droughts <laughs> back there yes yep exactly um it's been an exciting weather weather year so that's always fun and interesting on planet earth <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today? Well, speaking of planet Earth, I guess we always talk about Earth, really, sometimes. Um, <laughs> I put together some background on Earth's magnetic field because it's obviously near and dear to my research. And it's a really neat story. And I was kind of inspired by this because of that Galileo exhibit that I told you I visited at our university library where they had a copy of William Gilbert's really famous book about magnetization. So this sort of got me thinking that maybe we should talk about Earth's magnetic field. Yeah, and this is a incredibly complex topic and a very active area of research. So we're just going to hit a few of the high points, <laughs> yes. really, and a little bit of history, right? Right. Um, so because I got to see this work, which was amazing. So William Gilbert wrote On the Magnet, um, and it was published in 1600, which was just two years before he died of plague, actually. Um, but it's a really revolutionary piece. I mean, we still use, when we talk about magnetization on Earth, we still use some of the same, essentially the same figures that he used to describe the magnetic field. And what was so revolutionary about his work is it sort of served as a seed for many of Galileo's heliocentric ideas about rotation of the Earth. Yeah, and well, what was interesting with Gilbert's work, right, was that even in 1600, you know, that the mo the rotational and the magnetic pole are not the same thing. Exactly. Um, I was kind of surprised by that, too, actually, when I looked that up. So they knew they weren't the same, but they also realized that they were pretty close together. Um, and it wasn't widely accepted that Earth even rotated, right? So we thought the whole two-dimensional sphere of the heavens rotated around us and that the Earth was stationary. So that was the first big sort of scientific supposition he makes, is stating that the Earth itself is rotating. Now, incorrectly, obviously, he thought that this rotation was caused by the presence of a magnetic field. Uh, Gilbert did a lot of work studying lodestone, which is a magnetic iron ore, and 
he thought that all magnetic things in sort of their perfect state would rotate, and therefore the magnetic field caused the Earth to rotate. Right, which was an interesting idea, but like you said, we definitely know that's wrong now, though we do use magnets to keep things rotating for a long time. I mean, magnetic bearings are some of the, the best things you can put in high-end precision instrumentation. Right, exactly, and that kind of science, you know, came to light in the 1600s. It's pretty neat, so he was on the wrong-ish track, but it led us to the correct answers to a lot of these, and like I said, his ideas seeded Galileo's ideas about Earth's rotation and our place in the solar system at the time. But we know that, just like you said, the opposite is true, and that basically because we're rotating, we have a magnetic field, and it's something that we call the geodynamo. And yeah, so this, I guess, is the first place where there's a lot of misconception, uh, not only about the structure of the Earth inside and well, we don't know a lot about some parts of it, but the fact that there's not a giant bar magnet embedded in the Earth. <laughs> there's not? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you say that, and we're laughing, but sadly, and we'll get to this in a minute, that's the best model that we have. Right. <laughs> you know how I feel about models, but... <laughs> it's true. You, you live by the box quote. But, well, let's dig into the geodynamo a little bit and actually where the magnetic field comes from as far as we know. Exactly. So we know Earth has this solid inner core that's iron and nickel, and it's surrounded by a liquid iron, nickel, maybe some sulfur in there, metal outer core. And you don't, when you draw a picture of the Earth, I feel like we always don't really do this to scale because, I mean, the inner core is 2,300 kilometers thick. Right, which that's a significant fraction of the radius. Yeah, so we always draw this model of Earth with this tiny little inner core because we're usually interested in surface processes, in my case, or, you know, maybe upper mantle processes, um, and forget how large, 2,300 kilometers, that this rotating ball of liquid metal is. Um, so that is why we have this geodynamo, right? Yeah, and so there's a fancy term for what goes on, and there's entire books on this, uh, which is magnetohydrodynamics, uh, which is basically just the really big fancy word for moving fluids, creating or interacting with magnetic and electric fields. Right, and the fact that our fluid in this case, you know, everything acts as a fluid, I feel like. Even over time, rocks acts as, rocks sort of follow the same fluid dynamics as, say, the atmosphere does. Um, but the reason that there are dynamics in this rotating ball of metal are what create the magnetic field that we have on Earth. Right. So, I mean, you can think of this uh, sort of as a, a generator, right? It's, except in this case, we're generating the magnetic field. And because the flow is turbulent and complicated in this massive amount of fluid, we get a rather complicated field. <laughs> yes, that's probably even an understatement. Um, so just like you said, that's an important thing to remember, is that the Earth is constantly generating this magnetic field um, and this really complex sort of model. Um, we've got a link to this in the show notes, uh, the Glatzmeyer-Roberts geodynamo model. And you should really look this up. You might have seen this image before, and it's this weird spaghetti string looking model of all the magnetic field lines. Um, so the Earth is constantly generating the magnetic field. If it were to not being constantly generated, it would decay away in about 20,000 years, actually, which was an interesting statistic um, that I didn't know, because the core is really, really hot, so it can't keep a magnetization. It's got a constantly generating it due to the flux within that metal. Yeah, and that's actually a little bit longer than I would have thought. And it, it certainly pokes a hole in uh, all of the sci-fi movies. <laughs> well, yeah. So <laughs> when I asked my boss, who is, you know, a, a paleomagnetist, you know, what he had to say about the Earth's magnetic field that I should include, uh, he railed on about the core for quite some time, the core of the movie, obviously. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he said that was the only thing that they got right was something about 
<laughs> how it generates the field, but it was um, it was pretty amusing. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but like you said, it's really complicated. And so what we like to do in science is we like to simplify things with models. Um, so take a look at that really complicated model. And then let's go back to this thing, which always sort of blows my mind, is that we use a model called the inclined geocentric axial dipole. And Which is <laughs> a really fancy name for what if we buried a giant bar magnet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I love teaching about this in intro class because I feel like students come, especially to non-science majors, because students come to class and they always feel like, you know, science is this big, unattainable, unbelievable thing. Well, we don't know a lot about the magnetic field. Even though Gilbert started writing about it, accurately in the 1600s, even now <laughs> a big giant bar magnet is our best estimate. And actually it describes the behavior of the field quite well. And I say inclined because we know the rotational pole and the geomagnetic pole are different, about uh, 10 degrees difference right now, but that changes over time. And this big bar magnet accounts for about 90% of the behavior of the magnetic field on Earth. Which really isn't bad considering the uncertainties in most things in geoscience. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought. Um, and it's inclined because it's not the same as the rotational pole. And actually when we incline it and we move it out of the center of the Earth by about 500 kilometers, um, it actually helps to describe more. So upwards of like 93 to 5% of the behavior of the field. So that's just a marginally better model. Yeah, and well, so one thing that I think is important to point out, because a lot of folks uh, don't realize this, and it's easy to forget unless you think about this a lot, is that when you do the experiment, you know, in grade school of a bar magnet and some iron shavings on a piece of paper, and you see the magnetic field lines, you're seeing it in 2D, but the magnetic field lines are really these 3D vectors, right? It's a vector field that completely surrounds the magnet, just like the Earth's magnetic field is a vector field that surrounds the Earth. And that means that it has three components. So we describe them in the magnetic field in terms of inclination and declination. Right, exactly. Um, and so whenever you're talking about this, the inclination is it's a fairly simple mathematical concept, really. Um, so you think about how the magnetic field is inclined based on your latitude. Tangent of inclination equals two tangent of your latitude, essentially. Um, so this means when you're drawing, if you envision the drawing of these magnetic fields two-dimensionally around, um, the magnetic field enters the Earth at the North Pole, and we describe that as 90 degrees. And since we're very northern hemisphere centric, that's a positive number, or we call it right. down. <laughs> and then it's coming out at the poles, at the south pole, and that's 90 degrees up or negative 90 degrees inclination, making it zero inclination at the equator. At the magnetic equator, right. <laughs> yes, yes, um, which is not coincident exactly with the latitudinal equator, although it's not far off. It's not, and this inclination actually causes issues. Uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago when we talked about Brunton's, that the inclination was so steep near the poles uh, that you had to weight your compass needle. Right, exactly, because, I mean, 90 degrees, the magnetic field is essentially coming directly down at you, and so that's going to affect your little magnetic compass that you're trying to use. And it also doesn't exert a lot of torque. Well, if it's 90, it exerts none on yeah, the needle. That's true. Uh, so it can be a little bit useless there. Mm -hmm. That is true. Um, and then declination is the other part of this three-dimensional field. So declination is basically how far off the azimuthal component of the magnetic field is from geographic north. Right. And we've talked a lot about, you know, every spot on Earth has a declination correction, right? Um, just because the magnetic field isn't perfect. Right. And that can be, you know, we discussed it then, uh, many degrees, uh, some places approaching 90 plus, uh, but yes. about 10 degrees where I am. 
and it's about four degrees where I am. And you have to remember, and this is extremely important for paleomagnetism, that this this declination is all correction is always changing because the magnetic field is always changing. The zero line right now, I think, goes through Iowa and Louisiana. Um, so the line where there's no declination correction, but that's constantly moving uh, depending on where you are. So that being said, remember that earlier we said 90% of the field can be best described by this geocentric axial dipole model. But that other 10%, which can actually be 20%, depending on where you are on the surface of the Earth, is called the non-dipole field. Obviously. Right, and <laughs> the non-dipole field, uh, we just get that from observation and try to improve our models to better fit it, right? Right, exactly. So we it's defined by, you know, the observed magnetic field minus this perfect model geocentric axiodipole field. And then you can have maps that describe where this non-dipole field is at. Actually, the maps are quite scary because it always winds up with these weird face looking bullseyes that look like <laughs> evil clowns um but i'll let i'll let you guys go out and look that up as you know before well you know me john i'm super scared of the geoid too so it's true the geoid <laughs> figure and you don't get along uh, yeah exactly um but these this non-dipole field is really interesting and it's not studied very much because it's it's really difficult to study right you're trying to observe these fluctuations in this weird magnetic field that's not a dipole field we're so used to thinking in that sort of realm that it's hard to imagine these other things um these the non-dipole contribution you can really account for it if you imagine maybe tiny little dipole bar magnets for some reason are sort of beneath the surface at these anomalous spots and that actually pretty much covers how the um, the model of how the magnetic behavior uh is observed but what do they come from like why is there this non-dipole thing you know are they fluctuations in something i don't know if we know very well well yeah and so i mean you're talking on very large scale like planetary scale but if you zoom way into a regional scale or even just a very small part of a field area uh, you can use magnetic variations from near surface objects modeled generally as bar magnets uh, to infer things about the subsurface. Archaeologists use this a lot. Anybody that's gone metal detecting has used this, whether they've known it or not. And in geophysics, uh, we use that to try to constrain locations of dikes, sills, and that kind of thing. But that's on a much smaller scale, but the exact same principle. Uh, right, exactly. And that all has to do with, you know, there's some sort of magnetic anomaly um, we use this a lot, actually, is one of the first things when we talked about oil fields, because when oil migrates, it leaves behind frequently, you know, magnetic minerals, and you can sort of see these fluctuations, basically with aeromagnetic instruments. So kind of interesting. Yeah, but that's an entire other show, oh, since this is going to be our... at least. <laughs> <laughs> our uh, high-level overview. And we've mentioned a few times now that the magnetic field changes. And like everything in geoscience, it changes on many, many timescales. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank goodness, because that's why I have a job. But um, <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> our magnetic field, we've had it for sure about 3 billion years. So it's been cranking for a long time, right? And I think that anyone listening will understand already that we don't know a lot about it. It's actually pretty hard to model, right? Because there's a lot of weird physics happening in the core, super high temperatures, molten metal going around. So it's a hard thing to model and understand the behavior of the field. Um, we have a link in the show notes to some of these models that have been running for a long time um, out at Los Alamos National Labs with some collaborators to understand how the magnetic field works over a long time scale. Yeah, and I mean, there are lots of weird things that the magnetic field does, like occasionally <laughs> reverse. Uh, exactly. Again, thank goodness, because I have a job. Um, so we just described that right now, 
magnetic field lines enter into the North Pole, and that's our positive direction, and basically exit the South Pole. But that's not always true, and sometimes we wind up flipping our magnetic field. I think there's been a lot of scary Discovery Channel shows about what's going to happen when our magnetic field goes away. <laughs> yeah, because there is that period of time in between, uh, though it could be very short, you know, scale hundreds to thousands of years, uh, where there's a very low total magnetic field strength, which is really bad if you live on the surface and are harmed by ionizing radiation. Uh, exactly. That's exactly the point and why we're interested in forwarding, forward modeling this as well as understanding what's happened in the past. Um, so this model that's been running for a long time, um, it actually started to show these reversals and they sort of line up with what we know Earth's reversal history is. Obviously that's a really hard thing to collect in rocks and uh, we'll have a whole show at least about paleomagnetism where we talk about how you lock in reversals into uh, rocks because that's what we have to look at to understand the past. Um, but these reversals happen with not a lot of regularity um, and what happens during the reversal is quite terrifying. These spaghetti models showing the reversals. I know you've probably looked at these. There's some crazy stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it would be a very interesting time for Exactly. Us. <laughs> um, so if you've seen these big, large-scale, you know, pictures of the Earth, and it's got our magnetosphere, so the magnetic field isn't just good for using your Brunton, although <laughs> we like to do that. It also <laughs> protects us from a lot of the harmful things that come from the sun. And so during a reversal, we think that the magnetic field intensity goes down and then it flips and then it starts coming back up again. But that's going to leave us with a small, well, hopefully small, but like you said, it could be a little bit longer than that amount of time where we're unprotected from the magnetosphere. Right. And... Like I said, that would be really bad for anything uh, that lives near the surface. But there are other timescales that the magnetic field varies on, too, with some less dramatic uh, variations, let's say. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, the reversals are really quite interesting because there are times in Earth's past where for millions of years we haven't recorded any reversals. They've just, the for whatever reason, Earth's magnetic field has been stuck in either a normal which is what we are in now, or what we call reverse polarity. So where minus 90 degree inclination is at the North Pole. And these variations are different. But one variation that we can model actually quite well is what we call secular variation. Yeah, and so secular variation is basically the magnetic pole taking a walk. <laughs> yes, that is exactly um, what it is. Because this geodynamo is exactly that it's very dynamic on like the 10 to 10,000 year time scale the magnetic pole isn't always 10 degrees off from our uh, rotational pole right right and so that a little bit of wobble is really good if you're trying to look at things that may happen on a 10,000 year time scale uh, but in geology we're generally not that fine-grained. Right. So there's this, I love this so much. It makes so much sense to me. There's this large-scale sort of paleomagnetic axiom that over time we've averaged out secular variation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of the tenet of <laughs> doing anything that where magnetization is acquired over a long period of time. You can, and they've done models on this and it actually works quite well, that you can just say, Secular variation doesn't even happen because it winds up wobbling itself into a statistical non-entity. Um, but where it is useful is in archaeomagnetism. Yeah, and this is really cool. Actually, we should have a fun paper on it at some point if we haven't already uh, about you know looking at where these blocks were moved during reconstruction of old buildings and all kinds of really fascinating studies. Uh, exactly. Um, so due to how any sort of ferromagnetic mineral acquires magnetization, we can date pottery, like when it was made, 
Um, and just like you said, like the brick building reconstruction. So that's really interesting or just ancient stone buildings. If they've been reconstructed, you can actually, unfortunately, the sampling is destructive. Um, but you can actually tell, you know, where they were put together, if they were put together someone else and moved, um, if they were repaired. So archaeomagnetism is kind of hard to get your head around, but it's used quite a lot and it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's even a shorter timescale variation that really averages out, uh, on pretty much everything that's relevant, except maybe, uh, magnetic storms, uh, which is the diurnal variation. Right. And I know that um, we've set up magnetometers and looked at this too quite a lot, and it's quite significant. Yeah. So it can actually be tens of nanoteslas variation, and that's relatively small in relation to the entire magnetic field, right. but our instruments are so good we can see it really clearly. And so what causes this 24-hour diurnal cycle is basically electrical currents in the ionosphere, which sounds like something that, you know, Scotty would say to Captain Kirk. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but what's going on is when the sun comes out and it's midday, you actually get lots of uh, X-rays, ultraviolet radiation that are producing free positive and negative charges. They're breaking away electrons from things in the ionosphere, and that makes it a lot more conductive. And you actually get this ionospheric current flowing that modifies the magnetic field. Then dusk, less of that. Nighttime, that goes away. And you don't have that current modifying the field. There's also, if you really dig down into this, the ionospheric dynamo, <laughs> which is caused by uh, winds in the ionosphere and thermotidal-driven winds. So you actually get gravity playing into this as well. We're doing a show on that. That sounds like the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And it's when you get down into those third and fourth order effects that you're just amazed that these systems are connected. But yes, the moon actually does have some influence on the Earth's magnetic field. So it's radio. And I'm sure you can't tell, but like I have this huge smile on my face because I love when scales of sort of earth processes are repeated at different places so everything you just said about the ionosphere are sort of processes that we've talked about that are happening on the surface of the earth as well as deep within the core that's super awesome yeah well and if this sounds like total science fiction to you <laughs> if you've ever listened to an am radio which i would say most of our listeners probably have yeah. Uh, except maybe a few of the younger ones, uh, <laughs> you'll know that you always get a lot further, uh, stations that are further away at night. And if you're a ham radio operator, which I am, you know that you try to get this uh, this bounce, which generally happens in the evening. Right, exactly. And you can, that's a significant effect, right? You can talk to people much farther away when you're getting a good night, right? Uh, yes, actually, you uh, you go up and you... Uh, hit this layer in the ionosphere and it basically just reflects your signal back down to earth like a giant radio mirror instead of getting just conducted away and then it hits the ground and bounces and you can get three or four ground bounces and go pretty much around the world that is so cool <laughs> so the diurnal magnetic field is one of my favorite things just because you can observe it uh, very easily yourself just by trying to tune in a radio station, say, in New Orleans, where you are during the day, and then trying it again at night. Uh, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, since I look at such large timescales of the magnetic field, I never stop to think about how much the day-to-day -day interactions of it are affecting, you know, Earth processes in general. Because back in the day, and I say that geologically speaking... <laughs> we have some weird ideas about what the uh, what the magnetic field looked like. So, you know, a billion years ago, even before then, there have been ideas floated that are some weird stuff. So instead of this dipole model that we're all familiar with, uh, stuff like octopoles have been suggested. Yeah, that sounds like a horribly complex <laughs> model. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, paleomagnetism is hard enough that they call us paleomagicians because it's so hard to figure out. But when you invoke something like an octopole, I mean, 
There's almost no hope. No one can call you out on being wrong because who understands that? Yeah, with I mean, and with that many free parameters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you yeah. can just say whatever you want after that. Um, <laughs> but sort of back to back to reality um, and our diurnal cycles of the magnetic field. Um, we do a lot of quantifying and tracking of the magnetic field now. And we have a link in the show notes to the USGS Geomagnetism Group. Um, and there is a lot of stuff on this website and a lot of free data out there, too. Yes, there are base stations, very high research quality stations uh, around the U.S. And I actually go grab their data quite a bit uh, for some work that I do. And it's really great. It's free. You can grab it off the website. You can plot it on the website. You can write a little script to go get it for you. Uh, and they have a lot of great tools, like letting you calculate uh, this is really important if you're going in the field, uh, what the magnetic field strength and declination correction are for your location. Uh, exactly. And this is something that, you know, the people in my research group use constantly um, because, as I've noted before in PMAG, at least by our, our lab group standards, we never mess with the declination on the compass no matter where we go because... It's just a rule, so then we never have to make, you know, any guesses about whether we made the correct declination correction. We always input that into our computer based on our field area. So there's a handy-dandy calculator, um, and we have a link for this on the show notes as well, that will not only tell you your deck correction, but it will also tell you, you know, the strength of the field and your location. And so that's really neat. Um, I was looking this up, and you're over 1,200 nanoteslas stronger in Pennsylvania than we are here in Norman. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, so I actually looked up uh, for State College, and we are 52,515.4 nanoteslas average for today. Wow, yeah. And so we're 50,414 nanoteslas for today. So that is quite a bit of difference. Um, Yeah, (laughs) and so that actually brings up a really good point that we haven't talked about, which is the unit of magnetic field measure. We're throwing around nanoteslas. (laughs) Yes, that is true. Um, So usually we describe units of magnetism in teslas, um, and so, you know, thousands of nanoteslas. So it's, you know, the magnetic field strength isn't super big. Well, yeah, so nanotesla is a small unit, but remember, we're talking about 50,000 of them here, and... Really, Tesla is a lot. Uh, You can, so it depends on what kind of units you want to think in. Uh, You can say it's a kilogram per amp second squared. That doesn't mean much to almost anyone. Anyone, yep. Uh, (laughs) You can say it's a Weber per meter squared. Weber is a unit of magnetic flux. Uh, You can go all the way up the line, uh, even getting into units like volt seconds per meter squared. But basically, a Tesla is a lot. So your average fridge magnet, you're looking at 5 milliteslas. So that's 0.005 Teslas. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're looking at something, uh, oh, let's see, like a loudspeaker or something like that for your entertainment system, in the gap, there's about a 1 Tesla field. And that's very strong. Uh, yeah, uh, with yeah. a few tes- with a few Teslas, you're taking MRIs of people. Uh, with about an eight Tesla magnetic field strength, that's equivalent to what they use in the Large Hadron Collider. Yes, and that's where you start to get dangerous. Uh, we have a little induction um, magnetizing unit, so it will induce a magnetic field in a rock. And we don't go much above two point five Teslas, just sort of for safety. <laughs> so yeah, when you get up that high, you're talking about some serious stuff. Yeah, the, the National High Magnetic Fields Lab, which is in Florida, they have some very huge magnets that take massive amounts of power and are water cooled. Uh, this is actually where they did the thing where they made a frog float in a magnetic field uh-huh. years ago. Uh, they, when you go into the facility uh, to one of the magnet rooms, you actually take everything metal and put it in a locker because it will do things like pull pocket knives out. <laughs> and that's not something you want flying through the air. So, Absolutely not. Uh, same thing with MRIs. You know, there's nothing that's uh, going to be pulled into the machine. Right. 
right. the room. No metal tanks, that kind of thing. And I, your uh, your mag- magnetizer there in the lab, I remember that putting a dent in the wall when I was there. <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> that kind of interaction with metal. So just like you said, that's a really important thing. So, you know, the metal and the rock, we have special holders or whatever. But so I've heard... Not that I've ever done it myself. Um, if you put metal in there, you can literally shoot it out um, of the coil because that's a lot of Tesla being generated, right? And so you can shoot it, um, you know, you give it this pulse of magnetization and it interacts with the metal just like, you know, uh, mag trains or something like that. And the acceleration can be quite, quite high. Uh, yes, it can be a lot, <laughs> a lot of force. Uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But I know that there have been people that have used uh, analogs. They were trying to study remagnetization and making fake rocks that had some issues with not being able to hold the fake rocks in the machine to magnetize them. <laughs> right, exactly. And I've heard of some of these catching on fire, too, um, which is always exciting when you get to these high magnetic field strengths um yeah so that's always pretty fun but so that's a little bit about how you can induce a magnetization but just like you said you can record these um well the diurnal field but lots of other magnetic fields with magnetometers and we stick magnetometers everywhere as scientists yeah and magnetometers i i would say that most people are actually listening to our podcast on a device with a magnetometer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're listening to us on your cell phone and it's a smartphone, which would make sense because you're listening to podcasts on it, it has a <laughs> magnetometer in it. Uh, it has a compass feature and used for other parts of the navigation system. It's not a very accurate magnetometer. Yes, not at all. <laughs> uh, nor very precise, but it is a magnetometer. There are many different types of magnetometers, uh, proton precession, flux gate, cesium vapor, and I could go on about them for a very long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you forgot my favorite, which is liquid helium-cooled magnetometers, cryogenic magnetometers. Yeah, there are cry- cryogenic magnetometers, but I don't want to have to carry one of those into the field. <laughs> yes, they are quite large. Uh, and a lot of these though they sound complicated and the physics behind them are rather involved uh, you can build and demonstrate to yourself how they work i've built a fluxgate magnetometer and demonstrated it before as part of teaching a geophysics class Uh, let's see you can build proton precession magnetometers there are several sets of plans online for that uh, which sometime we should talk about how they work because lining up uh, spins of water molecules is really a neat, <laughs> a neat thing to do. Oh, uh, exactly. <laughs> or the, even these MIMS magnetometers that you can buy for a few dollars, which are like the ones in your cell phone, uh, you can set those up with something like an Arduino or the wildfire board that I talked about last week mm-hmm. and record with pretty minimal effort. Um, that's really cool. Um, I agree. We will probably have a whole magnetometer show because I know that sort of when you're looking at paleomagnetism, which we won't get into today, um, but you can look at, you know, the electron spins within a micron or smaller sized crystal of magnetite. And that's unbelievable to me. Uh, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, with the, like I said, we're talking about instruments that range from $3 to 300,000. Right. Uh, <laughs> if not, this. if not more now, actually, um, some of the big cryogenic magnetometers are quite expensive. And now they have these special non-helium cooled cryogenic magnetometers where it's this self-contained system that's even more expensive, which I want very badly. <laughs> <laughs> but. but so there's lots of stuff out there. I'll put some links in the show notes to a few of these different types if you're curious and want to look. And I'll also put a link in to what I called a 3D compass that I built and talked about a little bit at AGU last year that lets you see the direction in 3D of the magnetic field vector where you're standing. Or you can take a magnet and move it around and play with it. It's a lot of uh, fun. Yes, uh, that's super cool. Um, so I guess sort of to wrap this up, because obviously we could talk about this for ages. Um, <laughs> the The magnetic field of the Earth, you know, it's really important for our health, because like you said, if it wasn't there 
have a lot of really bad radiation hanging around. Um, and it does a lot of cool stuff to rocks, which is paleomagnetism, which is what myself and a lot of other scientists study as well. Um, but the coolest thing about the magnetosphere is clearly the auroras, right? Oh, yes. And <laughs> I've been watching Scott Kelly's Twitter feed, who's on oh. the space station right now, part of the year in space. It's And the aurora pictures are amazing. Uh, it is. I watch those as well. Um, I would hope that most people that listen to us are nerds enough to be watching those too, because... Yes, those auroras seen from the space station are unbelievable. So we have on our poles, you know, the aurora borealis or the aurora australis, depending on which pole you are. And the interactions of these um, ions from the sun with our magnetosphere are what create these beautiful auroras. And we're not the only planet that has them. Oh, no, absolutely not. And this uh, may be a topic that would be fun to discuss with our, our friends over at the Orbital Mechanics, uh, because space weather, there's an entire division in NASA that focuses on forecasting space weather, because it's very important for satellite operations. Exactly. And it's actually, um, I put a link in the show notes to this, too, because spaceweather.com will have um, sort of forecast for solar flares and such, because... Yes, they interact with our satellites, but they also interact with our magnetometers here on Earth quite a bit. Um, I know we can't use our cryogenic magnetometer whenever we're having a particularly strong solar event. And so, you know, our magnetometer is in a shielded room with hardly any magnetic field strength inside it. But the solar flares are still strong enough to interact with it. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, they'll knock out communication satellites sometimes. And when we're in the field... Uh, doing you know, boots-on-the-ground magnetometer studies or aeromag, uh, if there's a magnetic storm that day that's particularly bad, it's time to grab your favorite beverage <laughs> and work on some data from the previous day because you're not exactly. going to get anything useful. Exactly. Um, so we get driven out of the field for hailstorms and lightning storms and magnetic storms sometimes. Right. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up uh, before we go on for over an hour on this topic. <laughs> and I think we've outlined at least uh, two or three more shows on this. Uh, yep, exactly. Um, but let's hear about your fun paper for everyone's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> so. It also sort of has to do with storms a little bit, kind of. Uh, a, a little bit, maybe stretching <laughs> it. But <laughs> this is Zimmer and Sitar. And this was in engineering geology, and it's called Detection and Location of Rock Falls Using Seismic and Infrasound Sensors. And, and I, I know you love this stuff, because we've talked about infrasound sensors detecting tornadoes before, but now we're looking at rocks, right? Yeah, and this was one of the places that I was a little disappointed, actually, in this paper, is there was not a lot of integration of the infrasound in the mm -hmm. paper. Uh, I'm guessing that's going to be a coming publication because this was a pretty neat data set that they got. Uh, yeah. Uh, so basically the idea was rock falls are bad, like avalanches, because they can kill people. And we don't know a lot about the rates of rock fall in popular areas, even in Yosemite, uh, just because right now we mostly rely on witnesses to report them which means that it looks like the number of rock falls is going up, but that's probably really that the number of tourists is going up and yeah. the number of people that are taking iPhone video all the time is going <laughs> up. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, and before, you know, you s either see a rock fall in progress or you see its immediate consequence. But what's cool about this paper is they're talking about using um, seismic waves that are generated before... Uh, rock falls sometimes days or you know definitely hours but sometimes a day before rock falls you can use this to predict them yeah and so they look at and saying prediction is a, a pretty touchy thing in geoscience yeah, that's, that's true uh, <laughs> so they, they do a really good job of saying well look you know we detected these events 
And then we went back and looked beforehand and saw some interesting things. Uh, Detecting the events is really not a problem as long as you have sensors that are close because some of the large rockfalls can have around a magnitude 2 equivalent uh, Uh, signature. Yeah, I think one of them said 2.4, which was pretty impressive. Yeah, and if you put... They, they used geophones that had a really high corner frequency, 8 hertz or something like that. So they weren't even detecting things that were incredibly far away, just things that were you know, within a kilometer or so of their sensors. Uh, they mm-hmm. put some geophones out for a pilot study, uh, got some good results, went back out, put multiple stations out, and this time included infrasound, which infrasound is, well, it's below sound. We can't hear it. We're looking at uh, a few hertz or a fraction of hertz uh, pressure variations in the atmosphere. And that's a really cool thing. I love messing with it. I have an infrasound sensor sitting right behind me that runes continuously <laughs> in my house. <laughs> so you can hear all your neighbors doing whatever neighbors do all the time. <laughs> uh, mostly I have a really good map of what everybody's air conditioning system does. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so what they say in this paper is that Rockfalls can happen for a variety of reasons, uh, and you could imagine that these would have maybe some different uh, signatures before and during, um, one of which would be just a stress-induced burst. This is really important in mining operations, where you have high stresses on mine walls, and they can actually have rock burst events where rock shoots out into the tunnel. Uh, it's very, very hazardous, and there's been a lot of research on that. Right. Uh, another would be... You have rock that's been, they call it metastable. <laughs> we would call it teetering for <laughs> <Yes>. years. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, that eventually yeah, goes over. Uh, you could even say that your one of your favorite geological features would be susceptible to this, uh, the hoodoo. Oh, yeah, which is really sad. Um, yes. And so when I read this, I was actually thinking about that, obviously, <laughs> um, to think that, you know, these little hoodoos might be screaming right before they fall over. <laughs> yes, they <laughs> they might be screaming figuratively because as the rock begins to fracture, that is going to radiate seismic energy. Uh, granted, you have to be close and you have to be listening at relatively high frequencies to hear it, but it's there. And if you could detect that... Uh, it may give you some good advanced warning. In fact, they cite a study in France that detected cracking two hours uh, before this massive chalk cliff uh, broke away. Mm-hmm. That really surprised me, the amount of lead time, essentially listen, listening over you know these frequencies that we might not be used to listening over um, could actually give you an idea if a slope is unstable. What I thought was also cool was when they talked about frequency versus size of the rock falls and that the larger rock falls, which maybe this isn't surprising, um, produce a wider spectrum of frequencies. And I started thinking about that and it's like, that's kind of cool. You know, maybe that's indicating the greater variation of rock sizes that would happen in a large rock fall. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, and you've got a lot of different size processes going on in a larger event. Uh, exactly. Yeah, because you and, don't really think of seismic stuff giving you an idea about grain size in a landfall, but <laughs> it's kind of cool. Right. <laughs> uh, well, and they even say, you know, what, they're listening at seismic frequencies and infrasonic frequencies that we are not uh, tuned to pick up as humans. Right. But they said that the largest rockfall in the historical record of Yosemite occurred in 1987. Uh, and actually that there were two days of small rock falls and people reporting loud popping noises before this rock fall occurred. Uh, So there you're getting very clear warning signs for this huge rock fall, so it makes sense that there are smaller warning signs uh, that we have to use instrumentation to detect for others. I mean, not that you want to risk a big rock fall, but if you think that there were audible popping noises two days ahead of time, how, how many days ahead of time could you have you know, not necessarily predicted, but, you know, understood about that slope becoming metastable. That's really cool to think about because that's pretty surprising. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it's not something that we want to be going up and observing directly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, In the results of this, what I thought was interesting, so they they put out their equipment for two winters um, 
and it said they detected 12 rock falls over these two winters, and eight of the 12 were actually observed by witnesses, so were corroborated, which I thought that was quite a large percentage. So they said that initially many of these rock falls might be underreported because they're just happening in really populated areas. So I don't know if because they saw... People saw eight of the 12, if that just means Yosemite is actually a very well-trodden area or what. But I would have thought they would have heard a lot more. Well, they have a pretty limited detection range with these instruments. They didn't go into great detail about how they did their instrument corrections. Uh, But my suspicion is, especially since these were geophones, that they couldn't see very far effectively. And in fact, in figure six in this paper, uh, they showed distance uh, to the seismic station and the estimated volume of the rockfall event. And they show that if you're pretty close to the station, you know, a kilometer or so, uh, they do a, a good job of picking it up. But things further away than that that were reported, uh, they didn't see at all, generally. All right. Uh, but the ones that they did detect with uh, seismics but had no witnesses plot right on top of the rest. So they're relatively confident in those. Right, right. That's really interesting. I hope they do a follow-up using the infrasound more, too, because I know we've talked about that a lot with tornadoes and stuff. So that would be cool to see as well. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think this was in a relatively uh, trafficked area of Yosemite. And, you know, they had uh, some difficulties deploying the instruments that they talk about in here (laughs) of because it's a national park, uh, they had to have instruments that were not observable by visitors, uh, so it had to be camouflage, no big solar panels. They couldn't dig and bury instruments uh, like we generally want to do with seismometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a really bad uh, install that you have to make. <laughs> That's true. And I, I question frequently the thoughts behind that because I know people go to national parks for their pristine nature. But I also think it's important that the public see you know, what scientists are doing as well. So I think it would have been cool to see a big old solar panel out in the middle of a field somewhere, but that's okay. Yeah, and, you know, we don't have to put them directly on the trails, but I don't know what it would hurt burying a few seismometers. Well, maybe in the future. Yeah, well, you know, you can send your hate mail uh, to me uh, through the show. (laughs) And (laughs) Shannon, how can they do that? Well, they can do that uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can leave us an audio comment or otherwise at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, too, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. Right. We would really appreciate it if you enjoy our show. If you go leave us a review on iTunes, it helps other people like you that enjoy the show find it, and it gives us some great feedback. Don't be afraid to send us your suggestions for fun papers or things you'd like to hear us talk about. We love hearing from you. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.